Well, good morning, everyone. We're glad that you're here. We invite you to come in and uh, find a seat as people are making their way in the doors. I know it was a little bit soupy out there trying to get through, and we're glad you made it here safely. For those that may be uh, watching us at home, we're, we're glad that you're joining us in worship. We're here this morning to glorify the Lord, to, to praise his name, and I'm sure that all of us could find reason to praise God this morning. I, I just... How many of you, by show of hands, how many of you had a good week last week? Okay, wonderful. Reason to praise God this morning. Now, time of confession, how many of you had a bad week last week? Anybody, anybody willing to admit it? They had a bad week. It's okay. It's all right if you can say, I, I had a bad week. Because you know what? If you, if, even if you had a bad week, the fact that you're here this morning is reason enough to praise the Lord. As, as Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can praise him in all circumstances, and we are here this morning to lift high the name of Jesus. Let's begin that uh, by reading from the scriptures from Psalm 95, the first seven verses. And the word of the Lord says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to, to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are, are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, Lord, to worship you, God, Lord, to sing praises to your holy name, God. And I pray that as we enter into this place of worship, God, that we come before your throne, Lord, with a heart uh, of praise directed toward you, your goodness, your grace, and your mercy, Lord. Um, just direct our attention to you this morning. Block out any distractions that we might have this morning and uh, uh, direct our focus, our hearts, and our mind to you that we might give you all of our praise today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with us as we begin this morning by singing praise him, praise him. Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Sing, O earth, His wonderful love proclaim. Hail Him, hail Him, highest archangels in glory. Strength and honor give to His holy name. Like a shepherd, Jesus will guard His children. In His arms, He carries them all day long. Praise Him, praise Him, tell of His excellent greatness. Praise Him, praise Him, ever in joyful song. Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. For our sins He suffered and bled and died. He our rock, our hope of eternal salvation. Hail Him, hail Him, Jesus the crucified. Sound his praises, Jesus who bore our sorrows, love unbounded, wonderful, deep, and strong. Praise him, praise him, 
tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him, ever in joyful song. Praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed redeemer. Heavenly portals loud with hosannas ring. Jesus, Savior, reigneth forever and ever. Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king. Christ is coming over the world victorious. Praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him, ever in joyful song. Greet someone around you, tell them you're glad that you're here. the King of Kings. We will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of Lords, who is the great I Am. Lord Jehovah reigns in majesty. We will bow before His throne. We will worship Him in righteousness. We will worship him alone. He is Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. He is Lord of all who live. He is Lord above the universe. All praise to him we give. Hallelujah to the King of kings. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the Lord of Lords, who is the great I i 
seated. There we go. Good morning. All right. Morning. All right. If we're going to boast in anything, it's Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Great singing this morning. That was great singing. So uh, greetings, everyone. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And praise God for that. Huh? That's what we're here to do today, to enjoy him forever and to glorify him and all that we do. Um, just a few announcements this morning. Uh, we have attendance forms. Uh, so if uh, on, they're on your chair somewhere there, the white, uh, white sheets, if you can uh, fill those out as you, uh, as you have that opportunity before, uh, before you leave your seats. Um, greetings to all of you online. Great to have you join us this, uh, this great, uh, beautiful uh, Sunday morning. A little foggy here this morning, but uh, I know if you go up into the higher elevations, it's, uh, it's nice and sunny. You may want to take a, a road trip, right? Uh, all of you guys here uh, maybe take a road trip. But uh, anyway, greetings to everyone online. Um, so uh, a few announcements here. So we have, um, we recently celebrated Veterans Day on the 11th. Uh, if you uh, are a veteran, we thank you for your service. 
Uh, Ruthie Bowen has a gift for all veterans. Uh, so please see her after the service. Uh, Ruthie, uh, is she here? Yeah, Ruthie, right there. Ruthie Bowen has, uh, has uh, faithfully uh, served uh, you know, the veterans of our church and uh, the military and uh, has done a fantastic job for many years. So, uh, Ruthie, thank you for that. Uh, but not only that, uh, but uh, there are some cards out there for all of us uh, to sign and send at, uh, for uh, Christmas. These are Christmas cards that she's going to send off uh, to those who are now serving. Uh, so, so please see Ruthie after the service, sign the cards uh, so that she can send them out for Christmas. And again, th yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, we have an all-church Thanksgiving potluck dinner. It's an evening of gratitude, uh, Sunday, November 21st. So please mark your calendars on that. Uh, it's at 5 p.m. here. Uh, the Women's Committee has information for how you can participate in the event. There are two things you must do today, two things, right? Uh, first, you need to sign up. And uh, know so that we know how many are coming. And when you sign up, uh, let us know what you're bringing, since it is a potluck, right? And I know you all know how to cook some good food, right? Uh, and then second, uh, we need people to sign up to serve on different teams. So there are three teams, I take it. So setup, cooking, and cleanup, right? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm responsible for the cleanup, so hopefully you guys are going to stick around to help clean up. But uh, no, there are three, three, uh, three teams. Uh, please uh, sign up and, and help out. And please get involved in that. Um, so uh, our uh, Emily Hostetler, did I get that right? Hostetler, very good, is the missionary of the month uh, for November. Please pick up a prayer card as you leave today so that you, uh, you will remember to pray for Emily for the month. And if you want to designate a gift to Emily, uh, just mark your uh, blue uh, offering envelopes, the MOM, mom, uh, right? Missionary of the month. Very good, very good. Uh, pastor's class is a journey through the New Testament, continues today at 11 in the music room. Uh, there is room. Uh, they're working on uh, the book of Ephesians, so uh, please uh, please join them there. And uh, there is room for service in the fellowship ministry. So uh, if you have opportunity and you can make coffee, if I can make coffee, I know you can make coffee. I was, uh, I was over there making coffee today. I made a, a slight little error. Uh, Amy, hopefully she's not going to tell on me. Uh, but uh, anyway... <laughs> No, the coffee's good. The coffee's good. Just, uh, but it, you know, just about anybody should be able to make coffee, right, Amy? Yes, very good. But uh, yeah, you know, if you are not serving in any capacity, please, you know, uh, see Amy and uh, sign up uh, to help out with that ministry. Uh, it's a, a great ministry to partake in. Uh, new members class is beginning in January. This is for all those interested in becoming members of EFC. Uh, the dates of the three-week class will be January 9th, 16th, and 23rd. Uh, so uh, please uh, see one of the elders for more information about that class. Uh, the offering box is in the back, uh, so if you want to give, and uh, the blue envelope should be in behind your chairs uh, if you need to designate. And uh, we're so thankful for your uh, faithful giving, your generosity to EFC, uh, to uh, keep the lights going, the pastors paid, and all that, uh, to, uh, you know, to keep God's ministry going here. So uh, this church has been so faithful in that. Sure appreciate that. So our invocation passage of today is Psalm 138, if you could open up uh, the Word of God, Psalm 138, it's a, uh, a royal song of praise for God's saving help against enemies, so uh, who are we to be thankful for, please stand and let's read, if, if you can, please stand if you can. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your, your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. 
For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Praise God for the reading of the word. Please uh, yeah, go ahead and have a seat. And uh, I don't know if you heard that. I'm sorry, my phone was on. And so I got, this might be a good reminder to everybody to turn off their phones. Let me do that. Sorry about that. Um, let's go to the word in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you being very thankful, a thankful people. Lord, you are holy, you are righteous. Dear God, you are gracious. You are merciful. You are love, compassionate. You are just. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you love us, dear God. We are sinners. We confess that we are sinners, Heavenly Father. We confess that we have not loved you as as we should have, dear God. We confess that we need change. We're afraid, we're angry, dear God. We're sinners. Please forgive us, dear God. Help us, mold us to be more like your son, Jesus. Cleanse us with the blood of Jesus, dear God. Lord God, we desire to live for you. So please have mercy on us. Lord God, we, uh, we lift you up, dear God. We pray for a revival. Uh, Lord, across our land in this church, Lord, uh, gospel, we, we pray for the gospel of truth, dear God, we want to return to truth, we want to return, return, dear God, to your word, your precepts, your principles, dear God, may we be obedient to them, Lord, free our hearts and minds from idols, dear Heavenly Father, so may there be a re revival, dear God, and a rebirth in us, Heavenly Father. May we love you, Lord, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, dear God. Help us to worship you as we should. Heavenly Father, uh, we are entering the Thanksgiving season every day, dear God. May we be thankful to you. But at this time of year, dear God, uh, may we be uh, more thankful, dear God, to uh, your blessings, Lord, your mercy, your grace. Lord, may we celebrate that. Uh, may Lord God, you are good, you are greatly to be praised, help us to remember you each and every day in that. Lord God, we pray for our leaders across our nation, Lord, in our land, pray for our leaders in this uh, city, our leaders, dear God, in this church, Lord, we pray for humility, Lord, may they be responsible to you, Lord, to govern rightly, to govern justly, pray for accountability and wisdom, dear God. Lord God, lead us, move ahead of us, prepare the way. Lord God, we thank you for our military. We thank you for our law enforcement, firefighters, first responders, dear God, that, uh, that care for our needs, dear God, that protect us, to, that serve us, to protect our nation. Lord God, uh, we pray for those Christians that are involved in those, uh, those occupations, Lord. 
Lord, may you help them to stand firm, to pray for righteousness and truth, Lord God, for them. Lord, we pray for those who are persecuted, Lord, in the persecuted church in the Middle East and Africa, North Africa, dear God. We pray that you strengthen them, you protect them, dear God. Lord God, we're your children. May, uh, may you help them to stand firm against evil. Lord, may they put on the full armor of God each and every day. Lord God, uh, we want to pray for boards and committees of EFC. Pray for the leadership there. Pray for your ministry, for purpose, dear God, for uh, priorities to be made, for goals to be met that glorify you. And Lord, um, we also want to lift up the hospitalized, the ill, the homebound. Lord, may your mercy and grace uh, strengthen them. May you have compassion on them. May you be with them, dear God. Lord, uh, we uh, thank you for the offerings of today. We uh, pray for wisdom to be good stewards of those offerings. We thank you uh, for the uh, funds uh, to further your, your kingdom. May we further uh, your righteousness, Lord. Lord, we uh, lift up the sermon and our pastor to you today. May, uh, may Pastor Greg, may you be with him, Lord. Prepare the way. May, may he speak truth. May the word be clear. May hearts be prepared to receive. Lord God, we give this day to you. And, Jesus, and, and all God's people said, This time our children can be dismissed to their classes. This is the rest of you. Can invite you to stand and as we continue in our worship. And we cry out and say, Lord, I need you. Sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are, and where you
Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, that is the prayer of our hearts. Oh, Lord, I need you. It's good for us to admit it. It's good for us to cry it out. It's good for God to hear it because we always know he responds. And what a gracious God we have. Give you a few announcements as far as coming attractions so we know where we're going over the next few weeks. As you know, we're in the book of Ruth, and we will finish uh, probably in two weeks out of the book of Ruth. But next week, we're going to step out of the book of Ruth for just a, a one-off sermon on biblical ideas of thanksgiving. And it, it occurs to me that we could use a refresher on what it is that is thanksgiving. To whom do we give thanks? Why? In what context? What are the blessings? What is the practice of thanksgiving? And as we celebrate as a church family next week, the goodness of God and give thanks, we will turn our attention in the morning to what biblical thanksgiving is. And then when we return in the afternoon, many of us to celebrate his bounty and his blessing to us will have testimonies on our lips. Now, just a special word to those of you joining us online. Good morning and thank you for being with us. And we'd like you to be with us next week on Thanksgiving. And so if you're not here with us this morning, but you can be here next week, call the office this week. Call Monday morning and let them know you're coming, what you're going to bring, and how many of you will be so that we can plan accordingly. And come and join us in this room that will look a little different than it does now, but we look forward to having you with us. When the great Hudson Taylor left to go as a missionary to China, 
He was one of the men that God used to launch the modern missionary movement of a recognition that the gospel is to be brought to all the nations, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Just as a side note, those of us that were here Friday night and saw the movie, The Insanity of God, I highly recommend it. A very insightful view of what is happening in the persecuted church around the world today and how many brave brothers and sisters in the Lord are pushing the gospel forward, worshiping even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Well, Hudson Taylor was one of those who left everything to go to a foreign land, and of course he's traveling by boat. And as the ship that he was traveling on neared the southern Malaysian peninsula near the island of Sumatra, there was an urgent knock at his cabin door. He opened it, and there stood the captain of the ship. Mr. Taylor, we have no wind, and we are drifting toward an island where the people are heathen, and I fear they are cannibals. Well, what can I do, asked Taylor. Well, I understand that you believe in God, and I want you to pray for wind. All right, captain, I will pray for wind, but you must set the sail. Why, why, that's ridiculous, he said. There's not even the brightest breeze going. The sailors will think I'm crazy. But finally, because Taylor insisted that that was the condition of his prayers, he agreed. Forty-five minutes later, there was another knock at the cabin's door. You can stop praying now, said the captain. We've got more wind than we know what to do with. See, faith is acting according to the promises of God. And believing that he will keep his word and will do his will. And that he's often pleased to do so through the actions and decisions of his people. Now, if you were with us last week, you recall that I gave you some homework. Some of you are getting a little nervous now because you're wondering, do you need to pass it to the center aisle and turn your homework in? Do you remember what I challenged you? We talked about the covenant word Chesed, God's covenantal love, his faithfulness, his loyalty, his devotion to his people. And I said as your assignment this week, I want you to look for signs of God's covenant loyalty in your life. Now perhaps, perhaps it slipped out the back door of your mind and you didn't do it this past week. But you know, this is an ongoing assignment that we should have. If, in fact, we have a covenant-keeping God, and we do, if we have a God who is loving and faithful and devoted to his people, and we do, then we should be those who look for his fingerprints and actions to be in our lives. And so let's make that a practice. And when we do that, we will find thanksgiving comes more easily. Well, in the story that we're in so far in the book of Ruth, we see that Naomi has undergone a change in her temperament from the beginning of the story to where we are now. Now that she is starting to see the actions of the Lord at work in her life, her attitude has changed from one of complaining to one of praise and thanksgiving. And that's a good challenge for us then, my friends. Let's commit ourselves to looking for God's fingerprints so that we'll be the first to give thanks to God for all that he is doing. Well, if faith is trust in action, believing that God guides his people, then we're going to see some glimpses of faith in Ruth chapter 3 today. As we got to the end of chapter 2 last week, 
we saw that these two widows now have enough bread that will last them a good season. Through the generosity of Boaz, through the hard work of Ruth, they now have plenty of bread to take care of that initial need. As they have come back to Bethlehem, they were hungry. They had heard that the Lord had visited his people and had given them bread once again. But there's tension in the air because not all of the desires that they came back with have been satisfied. What about Ruth? And so we're left wondering how the story would progress as we begin chapter 3. And so we want to continue this morning with how God was working and orchestrating and planning the events involving Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, which ultimately is the story of God's love for his people and his determination to keep the promised line that would produce the Messiah going forward, even in the midst of very dark and difficult times, which was the time of the judges. So if God should give strength, we hope to finish Ruth chapter 3 today. But for now, as we begin our time in the Word, I invite you to stand. We're just going to read the first five verses, and then we'll get into our text for today. And the lovely and true Word of God says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So, Father, as we have read your word, we thank you that it is a gift that comes from your hand, but we need your help to understand it. And so now, by your spirit, would you cause our hearts and minds to focus on the truth of your word, the goodness of your character, the hope of your promises, and help us to hear your voice, that we might know that we have met with the living God. And so, Father, as we encounter you now through your word, may you change us and teach us that we would leave this morning knowing that we have been in the presence of the living God. To that end, we pray for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You can find in your bulletin the sermon outline that will guide us through Ruth chapter 3. And we begin with our first major point, which is a daytime plan. Now, there's been a season of sad passivity on the part of Naomi, but now we see that she's going to become more assertive. There has been some time that has passed between the first encounter between Ruth and Boaz in the barley field. But it doesn't seem like much is happening in that relationship, though the harvest had been going on for as many as seven weeks, which is probably an approximate time that we're dealing with here, give or take a week or two. But we find now as we begin chapter 3 that Boaz is at the threshing floor. That would mean the harvest has been gathered and brought in. That probably the threshing has taken place whereby the animals would march over the grain, separating the, the husk from the seeds. And then there would be the winnowing process that Boaz is involved in. But 
For those of us that, if we're hearing this story for the first time, we're thinking, okay, Boaz, we're kind of waiting for a little action on your part, and he doesn't seem to be in any hurry to pursue whatever should be going on there. At least that's our expectation. Certainly it would have been the expectations of the first hearers because they would expect something to be going on. And so Naomi takes some action. She wants to encourage things to move along a little bit. Now we see that even in her encouragement, we have the hand of God's divine providence. We've seen that he is behind all of these things, guiding them so that they accomplish his purposes through his people and his timing. You see, the providence of God, the fact that he is in control of all things, does not exclude our faithful obedience. It does not exclude our active thinking and active planning and active assertion of our energy, exertion of our energy. As we walk by faith, which we're called to do, we engage our heart, soul, mind, and strength under the authority of the word of God and the truths that he reveals. And so we recognize then that he is not honored by our laziness, nor by our inaction, because his word commands us to action. His word commands us to obey. His word commands us to do. And he gives us minds to think and to reflect. He gives us hands with strength to do and legs to go there to do them. And he's also guiding the process so he can block the path if he wants to. He can redirect the path if he wants to. But it does not exclude the need for us to plan well, reflect well, think well, seek good counsel, and take some risks. Of course, The boundaries of those risks are we can do nothing that would lead us to compromise any of his precepts or principles, nor anything that would be dishonoring to him. In Scripture and in the Christian way, the ends do not justify the means. The principles of God justify the means. And then he is the one that determines the ends. But all throughout chapter 3, just as we've seen in the first two chapters, there's a lot of personal dialogue. And that's what makes the book of Ruth so interesting. We get kind of the inside story as people are dialoguing and discussing. And and we find these people relatable as we overhear their conversations and about their plans and their progress. So as we have this daytime plan, we get to Naomi's plan, which is a, a plan for rest. And she begins by saying, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? That it may go well with you. Now, this would cause us to flash back to chapter 1, verse 9, where when the daughters-in-law are walking with Naomi who wants to go back to Bethlehem, she tells them to return to their mother's homes that they may find rest in the homes of their husbands. And she didn't think she could do that in Moab. And so she told them to stay in Moab. But Ruth, of course, as we know, went on with her. Well, the word here for rest... Manoah refers to the tranquility and safety that a woman of Israel longed to find in the home of her husband. It, it actually gets the idea of that nesting instinct that women have that is given by God, that is present in the Garden of Eden, and that all women desire to have this safe and secure nesting situation of protection into which she can raise a family. And that is what Naomi desires for Ruth. But we see something else here. Naomi has prayed in chapter 1, may you find rest in the house of your husband. 
And now we're here in chapter 3 that she realizes, maybe I need to be ready to be part of the answer to my own prayer. And that's the way it is. Whatever God has given us, we give to him with open hands and say, Lord, would you provide for such and such and so and so? And it might be that you want to use me. And then we get to see God at work in our lives. Now, let's think for a moment about this whole idea of rest. It's a very biblical concept. It's a theme that starts really in the beginning of Scripture and then is something that is promised all throughout and will culminate in the ultimate rest in the new heavens and the new earth. God created the heavens and the earth and he rested on the seventh day from his work of creation. Though he continued obviously in sustaining creation, preserving creation, or it would no longer exist. But he set the model of resting one day out of seven. And then he gave the Sabbath as a blessing to the people, not as a curse, because the Sabbath day rest was to be a time of refueling, of spending time with God and fellowship with his people and taking a rest from regular work so that we could enter into the rhythm of creation that God has built in. And so when we see the Sabbath as a gift from God, it is something that we will enter into. If we bog it down with human rules and regulations like the Pharisees did, we will see it as a burden. But from the rest that was given in the Sabbath, Jesus then gave the offer of rest from the Manipulations of the Sadducees and the Pharisees to pursue salvation through the law or obedience through the law. And he said, come unto me and I will be your rest. I will give you rest. Come unto me. Bring your burdens to me and share them with me. I know how to deal with them. And that points forward then to the ultimate rest that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. Because there will no longer be any effects of sin anywhere. Just righteousness. And joy and peace in all that has been given. So Naomi wants to find rest for her daughter-in-law. And up to this point, we have seen that Ruth has been industrious. She's been creative. She's taken the initiative. She's been taking care of Naomi. Even going back with her to Bethlehem, which we saw she left everything. She abandoned everything to go with the people of God. And, And we've seen her work hard in the fields. And God has had favor upon her and blessed the work of her hands. Now Naomi wants to return the favor. Says, I need to see that you have rest. I'm not going to be around here forever. It will be terrible for you to be a widow, a foreigner at that, among the people of Israel. I want to find a way to find you rest. And in the, the period of that time, the ancient Near East, it was the responsibility of parents to provide for the marriages of their children. Most marriages were arranged. Because they understood that it was the families that were involved. That's still practiced in a number of places today, even by Christians. The understanding that marriage is more than just a love relationship between two people. It's a covenant commitment of two families. Well, Naomi does not want Ruth to be left alone without rest. She wants to care for her well-being. And so that's what's behind this challenge. Should I not find rest for you? Boaz will be on the threshing floor, she says. And we've learned already in chapter 2 that Boaz was a noble and virtuous man. That, how we would use that term to describe him. But do you notice the language? And this is why we love the word of God, because every word is instructive for us. Notice how Naomi talks to Ruth. She says, is not Boaz our relative? So we see that the grace of God is including even this 
Moabite, who is now seen as being part of the family and one who, who is to be taken care of and come under the grace and mercy of God. And the fact that she needs to be taken care of would mean they would go to a relative, a kinsman redeemer, one who was nearby, who would take over, as it were, the needs of whatever family members were there. And so perhaps he would be more amenable to a marriage proposal than to someone outside of the family or clan. And he'll be working. He'll be on the threshing floor. Be an interesting study for us. But I want you to imagine a hilltop that's got kind of a flat top with maybe some stone walls around it. And I want you to imagine the wind whooshing up one side of the hill and down the other. That's approximately what a threshing floor would be. After they have thresh the grain, they go up on top of the hill, and they take it and they throw the grain up in the air, and the wind would come through and separate the chaff from the good and would blow it away, and the good grain would fall to the ground. That's where Boaz would be up winnowing on the threshing floor. He's working at night. It doesn't say why he's working at night. Maybe he's just really busy. Maybe the harvest had been exceptionally good. Maybe the winds at night are more favorable. Maybe it's just cooler at night. All we know is that he's, he's on the threshing floor at night, and he is working, and she knows that. So this would be the threshing floor that would be out under the open skies. And during this harvest season, it was common for men to spend the night out on the threshing floor. One, to get work done, but two, to protect the harvest that they're bringing in from wild animals and from thieves. So, we have a plan for rest. He's up on the threshing floor, and now we're going to pre prepare the plan. Naomi takes the initiative that's going to involve both Ruth and Boaz. She says, you need to clean up, put some ointment on. There's a cue that something is going to happen. Perhaps Ruth herself has been working all day. She needs to clean herself up. But this is what I do not think is happening. I do not think that this is so much a command for Ruth to doll herself up as if she's going on a date. I think what it is, it is a single signal of the change in her status in society of that day. What do I mean by that? It was very common then for women who were widows to dress in a certain way to indicate that they were still in the mourning period of their widowhood. And every culture had those different signals that would indicate that a woman was still in mourning over the loss of her husband. And so by changing her outward appearance, there would be a signal, as it were, of the change in her status, in her social status, that she is no longer in the period of mourning, but is ready for a change in status, even moving forward in life, open to all possibilities, including the possibility of marriage. That is something that is still practiced in most Middle Eastern cultures today. Where there are definite signals that women have when they are in a period of mourning. And everyone that looks at her will know she is in a period of mourning. And that is not the time where you can have any discussion about a new marriage for her. So Naomi tells Ruth, we need, we need to get this thing moving. Perhaps the reason why Boaz hasn't approached her at all is she still is in her mourning clothes, as it were. Indicating she is not yet over that period, not yet open to whatever else might happen. But then she says, take your cloak. Now, this is not like a fancy evening gown. This is just the outer cloak that she would need. Why? Because where is she going? To the threshing floor to spend the night. She would be cold. She would need a cloak to be over her. That's where the story is going. So Naomi instructs Ruth to observe what Boaz is doing, where he works, 
where he eats, where he lies down for the night. Wait until he's had a good meal, she said. Wait until he's drank his wine. Wait until he's unwound at the end of the day. He's content after a full day's work. This, this will be repeated again in a few verses. And in verse 7, the phrase could be translated, his heart is good. I think the ESV says his heart is merry. But it's the idea that his heart is full and content because he's had a good day's work. And I think we can relate to that even today. If, if we've had a good day's work and then we've had a good meal and it's time to unwind at the end of the day, there's a sense where there's a, a contentment and we're more relaxed than we might have been earlier in the day. But Ruth is to notice where he has gone to uncover his feet and to lie there. And then she says, and he will tell you what you are to do. And I want to underline that point. This was the, what she was given from her mother-in-law. He will tell you what to do. And notice her willingness. Ruth continues to show her great character. She shows that she is this noble and virtuous woman. She said, all that you say, I will do. We see that there is affection. There's a strong relationship between these two women. And so as the story is unfolding, we see a change in the demeanor of Naomi. As she has seen God provide, she now becomes what her name means, pleasant. And not mara, which she said at the beginning, I'm bitter. The bitterness is moving away. The pleasantness is coming back. And now we have a shift from the daytime plan to a nighttime plot. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I, Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So the, this section of the text begins by saying that she does what her mother-in-law commands, and I'll say, for the most part. She waits until he eats, until he drinks, until he's content, until he lies down, no, notices where he is resting. We, we're told that it's at the end of the threshing floor near the big pile of grain. It's a good harvest. Wants to keep watch over his harvest during the night. And then we see Ruth watching and approaching. So here, here we have it. Ruth sneaks up to where he is lying, uncovers his feet, and lies there. Now we're not given any time dimension to know how long the one has transpired since the other. How long did she have to sit there and remain silent? We're only told that it was midnight that the man was startled and he turned over. Now the word for startled literally is he shivered. So he, we can see he shivered in the cold. And the word for midnight literally is at the halfway of the night. 
Now, whenever midnight is used or the halfway of the night in Scripture, it usually is an indicator that something important is about to happen, and indeed that happens here. So Boaz has been sleeping for a few hours when suddenly he becomes aware that his feet are cold. Now, all of us can relate to that. We wake up during the night and where'd the blankets go? And we pull them back over ourselves. So the plan seems to be working, but now it's under threat. Because to his astonishment, he discovers that someone is lying at his feet. And though he doesn't, know, doesn't tell us how, he realizes that it is a woman. The potential is great for scandal. The potential is great for the plan to be ruined at this point. If he were to shout out because he's startled, what's going on? Who are you? The plan could be ruined because she would be discovered. So imagine being Ruth. You sneak up. You know, we almost need to have the cartoon music going at this time. And she's sneaking up to the blanket, fawns on his feet, waiting, waiting. Suddenly he startles. How fast is her heart beating at this point? I mean, there's some real human drama going on here, okay? But there's more going on culturally that even add color to the situation. Where did the men often spend the night during the period of the threshing harvest, threshing of the harvest? On the floors, the threshing floors. So that means they're alone. Who else knows that they're on the threshing floors? The prostitutes. And so they would know as well that, hey, there's some lonely men up on the threshing floor. And did you know that the prophet Isaiah Prophet Hosea, I'm sorry, Prophet Hosea uses the image of the threshing floor as a sign of immorality. And that adds color then to the background of what is going on in this situation. There's tension here. Which way is this going to go? Whose reputation is going to be affected? How is this going to impact the plan of God? Frankly, from a strictly human perspective, this plan is crazy. And it's only going to work if God's in it. That's why we trust the providence of God. Because God is in it. But let's move on. We go from watching and approaching to an amazing proposal. Now some do try to turn this episode into some type of seedy, nighttime, clandestine encounter. In theological studies, particularly in what, what are called feminist studies... That's exactly what they do. I remember being in seminary and just shaking my head at the creativity of man's sinful mind to come up with all kinds of goofy interpretations of the text. Yet that's not fitting with what we know about the character of Naomi and of Boaz and Ruth in this story. Yes, this was the time of the judges. Yes, this was the time when most of Israel had given itself over to its own customs and cultures and passions and desires, and each one doing what is right in his own mind. But the reason why we have the book of Ruth is to show us not all of them did. God always has a remnant among every situation. He has a remnant among his people, and his covenant purposes will not fail. Somehow, <laughs> and we have to admit there is a little bit of humor in the situation, if not intrigue, because imagine being asleep and you wake up and there's a woman there at your feet. And somehow, without waking up anybody else around, he just says, who are you? And then something's interesting in the response of Ruth that understands 
uh, that shows that she understands there is a change in her social status. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. But the word she uses here is different than the one she used earlier in the chapter. When she said, you're treating me as one of your servants, though I'm not one of your servants. And she uses the word for the lowest of the low of the slaves, the one who had no rights and no responsibilities. But here she uses the term for herself that shows an elevated status among servants, one who is actually able to have rights and responsibilities. So the words are important. Each word helps the story to understand. She knew that she was the lowest of the low before, but now she uses a different term that shows that she is able to be perhaps more of an equal, as it were, with Boaz, more like a handmaiden as opposed to a slave. And that change of terms adds drama to the story. Now, you remember when we were reading the story at the beginning, I emphasized the fact that Naomi said to Ruth, he will tell you what to do. And I, kept, I emphasized that because I also said Ruth didn't fully listen to what her mother-in-law had said. Instead of waiting for a command from Boaz, she gives one to him. Now, the figurative language is, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is powerful language, but my friends, this is a marriage proposal. Ruth is saying, marry me. My status has changed. I'm now eligible for marriage. This phrase, spread the corner of your cloak over me, was a sign of a woman coming under the protective care of her husband. And it's a sign that is still practiced today in traditional Middle Eastern marriages, where the husband-to-be will put a cloak over the wife-to-be as a sign that he is, she has now come under his protective care. Now, we could say, well, she was just cold, so she asked to you know, pull the cloak over her. But she was looking for more than just cover from the coldness of a night. She wanted protection and cover for a lifetime. And so we have a turnabout here. Ruth has been told to wait until Boaz tells her what to do. Instead, she tells him what should happen. You need to marry me. Now, this expression to cover one with one's cloak or the corner of one clo one's cloak is used in Ezekiel 16 where it is God who, in a sense, marries Israel because he, he sees her and it covers her up as if entering into a covenant relationship with her. Now, some try to turn this, as I said, into something untoward by saying, well, there's loaded language here that really this was an attempt by Ruth to trap him into some type of midnight tryst and thereby he would have to marry her. But that's not what Naomi and Ruth were looking for. They were looking for long-term security, not short-term satisfaction. All throughout the book of Ruth, both Boaz and Ruth, are referred to as terms that indicate their nobility, their upright character. So nothing in this encounter happens that will affect that. Now, the, her request that he cover her with the corner of his cloak, it's translated a little bit different phrasing depending on translations, but that's the general gist of it, reflects something that Boaz said to Ruth in chapter 2. He said, you have come to take cover under the wings of the Lord. Now, we already saw that Naomi realized she would have, perhaps have to be part of the answer to her prayer on Ruth's behalf. Now, basically, she's saying to Boaz, Boaz, be the answer to your own prayer on my behalf. 
Take me under the refuge of your wings, for you are a redeemer. And this reveals conversations that we weren't party to, but she understands who he is, what his relationship is to Naomi and Elimelech, and what is the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. A redeemer who had many different responsibilities, but they all involved somehow taking care of, protecting, and providing for a family in need. So this could all come crashing down if Boaz doesn't respond in the right way. What if he had woken up and he, he felt that this was an inappropriate approach, but hey, nobody else is here, I'm going to take advantage of the situation. What if he had shouted out, get away from me, you immoral woman, who do you think you are? What if he had said, if I had wanted to marry you, I could have, because I saw you working in the fields week after week, what are you doing? The whole plot would have come crashing down at that point. But is that how Boaz responds? No, he seems more delighted by the response. He's honored by her request for protection and rest under the shadow of his wings. But think of the great reversal that is happening here. This has to be of God because after all, we have a woman that is asking a man for marriage. We have a Moabite that is asking an Israelite. We have a poor young woman asking a richer, older man. It's all being reversed because God is in it. That's what the grace of God does. He transforms and he surprises and he's able to surprise his people. He's at work. So we see it here in the gracious response of Boaz. It could have gone south many times, but instead Boaz responds with a blessing, a promise, a warning, and a word of insurance, of assurance. He shows warmth in this encounter to her, as he has done all throughout the encounters that we see with her. May the Lord bless you, my daughter. He understands perhaps that the Lord is in this situation. And then he goes on and comments on this word, chesed. It's the word translated as kindness in the ESV. This kindness that you have shown is even greater than the first. Now the first Chesed, this covenant loyalty that Ruth showed was, of course, leaving her own parents, her own people, her own language, her own culture, her own religion to join the people of God. But now she's asking for marriage in a context where it would mean she's looking out for the needs of the family, her own mother-in-law, perhaps even her own father-in-law, Elimelech. But he says you could have gone after strength, you could have gone after other things. He says there's a lot of young men there that you could have gone after, but you didn't. You followed the norms and customs of the people of Israel so that the, those principles would go forward. So again, we have to wonder what's going on in Ruth's mind. She's alone on the threshing floor with Boaz. She has risked everything in this midnight encounter. She's risked her reputation. She's risked probably her livelihood to appear at this time and in this situation. If she had been discovered, she would have been called a woman of ill repute. Because that was the reputation that Moabite women had. If you recall, when the people of Israel came through the promised land, and they came around the land of Moab, the women of Moab seduced many of the Israelites and led them astray. We know the Moabites themselves came about as a result of an illicit relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. The Moabites had a terrible reputation. Ruth risked everything. 
because she shows by the grace of God that she is kind of the anti-Moabite. She's a woman who's virtuous. She's faithful. She's upright. She wants to be a God-pleaser in her life. And Boaz is impressed. And all who would hear this story for the first time would be impressed as well. This is really a woman of character. And so after a gracious response, he gives her a firm promise. And so it's interesting that in this context, the first thing he says to her is, do not fear. Don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. Basically, he's saying, look, Ruth, I will see that you are married. I will see that you find rest in the house of another husband, our new husband. And she is, again, commenting for her character. He says, the whole town has heard about you. They all know about her good reputation. Now, Ruth hasn't been there that long. And we don't find that she necessarily draws attention to herself. And yet all the townspeople know now that she is a noble woman. Because at great cost, she has shown loyalty and devotion to her mother-in-law. And that has impressed the people of her town. Now, you remember when we first introduced the book of Ruth, we said that in, in the Hebrew Bible, that the book of Ruth came after the book of Proverbs. Not like we have it based on the, the, the tradition of the Septuagint, where it comes more in the front of the book in the historical books. I think that's important because we recall Proverbs 31 talks about the noble and virtuous woman. And then Ruth coming right afterwards would be an example. And that's why it was read during the time of the Pentecost, the Feast of the Pentecost. Well, look at Proverbs 31, 31. It says of the noble woman, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That's how the book of Proverbs ends. And if the book of Ruth comes right afterwards, we have this testimony that says, everybody in town knows that you're a noble and virtuous woman. But I think the application for us today is this. Are we living in such a way where Christ is our king and holiness is our goal and faithful service is our lifestyle that we have a reputation being good and godly and noble and virtuous people? The fact remains that people tend to talk about other people, right? And there are those who talk about us in different contexts, in different settings. What is it they're saying? How are we living? Are we in tune with the Spirit of God and the ways of God so that we have a reputation? The whole town knows that we are noble and virtuous people. That's what they did with Ruth. We see the providential grace and mercy of God on this Moabite woman who has now joined the people of God. Now at this point, based on what Boaz has just said, perhaps in Ruth's mind, the wedding bells are starting to go off. But then we get to the warning. Because a problem presents itself. And once again, the plans are under threat of what Naomi and Ruth have put into practice. And Boaz says, yes, I'm a redeemer. But there are many in our clan. In fact, there's one who is closer to Elimelech, who, would have been the, who has the first right to you and to marry you, Ruth, is basically what he's saying. These words would have barely rolled off of Boaz's tongue when Ruth's heart would have skipped a beat. After all, the plan seems to be going so well. 
And suddenly it dawns on her. He has said, I will do for you all that you have asked. Hint, hint, you will get married. But by saying that there is one that is closer, he introduces the possibility that maybe dawns on her now. Oh, I could get married to someone other than Boaz. And Boaz shows that even in this situation, he stays true to his character. Because it's obvious that this is something that he desires. And yet he will not go against the scriptural norms that the culture practiced. He knows it would not be right for him to jump the line, so to speak, to take the first shot, if you will, at taking care of Ruth. He'll be a righteous man in this matter, even if it costs him something, because he trusts the Lord to direct all things. Now, we may ask at this point, certainly Naomi knew that there must have been a closer redeemer. Why did he deal with, with Boaz? I think we just trust the providence of God in the story. But Boaz says, I'm going to go to work in this, Ruth. Just remain here tonight. Would not be good for her to suddenly get up and leave in the middle of the night. That would only put further risk at the situation to her reputation, perhaps even to her, her health and her safety. I mean, if she's encountered during the middle of the night, they would think only one thing. But then notice what he says to her, what he's going to do the next morning as he interacts with this kinsman redeemer. He repeats a word several times so that we don't miss the point. He says, if he will redeem you, good. And it goes on and says, let him do it. But actually the word could be repeated. If he will redeem you, let him redeem you. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Be at peace, Ruth. You will be taken care of. You will be redeemed one way or the other. And we're wondering with the constant emphasis on this word, is there more to come? So after this nighttime plot has been hatched, next we see the morning provision. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then he told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So we're not told for how long, but we can guess midnight to before dawn, laying at their feet. I wonder how much sleep either one of them got after this very interesting encounter and conversation during the night. We can imagine that Boaz's mind is already working. How am I going to plan the next steps? We can imagine Ruth wondering, how are these steps going to affect me and what's going to happen? But they get up early. And Boaz shows his protective care of Ruth and says, don't let anyone know that a woman was here. And it's obvious why he would give that counsel. If Ruth were accused of anything untoward, this whole matter could come to an end. She would no longer be considered qualified or suitable for marriage. So we see again and again Boaz showing his character and protecting and, and nurturing the reputation and person of Ruth. But they would, in a sense, kind of need a good cover story. So he gives her a great gift. 
Bring your garment here, that cloak that you are wearing. And he begins to load her up with grain. And as we, as we look at how the language is actually used, we're not really sure how much the six measures are here. Because we're not given the exact level of measurement. But it says he had to load it upon her. And we get the idea he kept pouring it into her cloak, had to tie it up and kind of place it on her shoulder. It seemed like it was too much for her just to kind of just carry in her cloak out in front of her all the way back home. The phrase is saying loaded on her is often used to, well, you can imagine loading up a worker or a, a beast of burden. Once again, Boaz shows grace and mercy. Abundance, blessing. So Ruth returns home, and then we have what would be seen as a sign of no more emptiness. Ruth returns home to her mother-in-law, and I wonder how much sleep Naomi got at this point. After all, this was her plan. She's the one that had sent Ruth off in the middle of the night, wondering what could happen. How much sleep did she get? We're not told. But we can read between the lines and how it's translated in the ESV, which says, how did you fare, my daughter? Which is not a bad tra tra translation because she wants to know what happened. But the, the phrase literally says, who are you, my daughter? It's not as if Naomi doesn't know who Ruth is. It's she's asking as if there is a change in her status. Who are you? Are you still Ruth the Moabite? Or are you the almost fiancé of another? How did it go for you? So Ruth gladly recounts all that has transpired, and she shows the grain that she has received and the six measures of grain. And imagine then the surprise when Naomi sees again Ruth bringing home this abundant harvest of grain from the hands of Boaz, <clears throat> who has said to Ruth, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Remember chapter 1? Naomi comes back to Bethlehem. My name is Bitter. Grumpy, I came back empty-handed. And God in his kindness is reversing her situation. She will no longer be empty-handed. Seems to be a subtle signal from, from a Bo a Boaz to Naomi. Look, I know you're behind this. You will not be disappointed in my efforts. You will not be empty-handed. What you long for will be provided. Many commentators look at this, and I had to reflect on it for a moment, and then I realized in the larger picture, I think they're onto something, that there's a greater promise here than just grain. You will no longer be empty-handed. That the line of Elimelech, the line of your sons, the line will carry forward somehow. There'll be more than just seed in your hands. There'll be inheritance. So in anticipation of that, Naomi tells Ruth, you wait here while he works. Ruth, you've done all that you can. We could translate this expression as sit tight. The Lord is in control. And we know that if we're in anticipation of something happening, it's probably hard to sit tight and be patient as the Lord brings about his will. But that's what we are to do. There are times where we know we have the promise of God that he will provide. We know that God will guide. We know that God will give. We know that God will bless, but we don't always know how. And we find ourselves in need, and we find ourselves in angst. And oftentimes we're in a hurry for God to get with it. And we need to remember that we should sit tight because he is at work.
and his timing will be perfect. So Ruth, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, you can relax because he won't relax until the matter is solved. His kinsman redeemer will work until the matter is solved. What's interesting now, these are the last words we hear of Ruth in the book. Now the story will switch again to what will happen with Boaz, what he will do. Ruth is involved, of course, but we don't hear her speaking. We hear Naomi speaking, Boaz speaking, and the other one speaking, the man that he interacts with. But we have two women now that have bread. We see Ruth rising in her status. Naomi, who has been praying for Ruth in anticipation of seeing that prayer being answered, has been part of it. And Boaz's prayer in chapter 2 that Ruth would be repaid looks like it's going to be answered as well. So in the daytime there was planning. In the nighttime there was implementation. In the morning there was resolution. And we'll see that in two weeks when we finish our time in the book of Ruth. And there is a love story going on in Ruth. But it goes far beyond the love of a man and a woman. It involves the love of God for a people. We see the image of a redeemer who risks everything to take a bride to himself. Which points, does it not, to a greater redeemer who left everything to come and win a bride to himself, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this kinsman redeemer who will do what is necessary to gain a bride points to the ultimate groomsman, if you will, redeemer who lovingly purchases a bride for himself and purifies her, even us who are in Christ. A redeemer who has covered us with his eternal cloak of forgiveness and forgiveness, uh, redemption and compassion and mercy and will bring us in his presence forever under his protection and provision of the greatest cover that could ever be given. So as we await the conclusion to the book of Ruth, what are some points of application? Well, God is in control, and yet we are responsible to act with wisdom and faith. God wants us fully engaged in our service to him, fully trusting him, doing what he commands and expects us to do, even as he is in control of it all. We are to pray and to trust the Lord to provide for others. We are to be involved in intercession. We pray for the needs that we see. We pray on behalf of others. But then we need to be willing to be part of the answer to that prayer. To not just say, God, do something. But be willing to say, God, if it be your will, do something through me. And we learn that this chesed, this covenantal love of loyalty and devotion and commitment always seeks the benefit of others. It is a giving, lavishing love that always seeks the benefit of others. We learn from the example of Ruth, the example of Boaz, that kindness is contagious. And that the kindness of one leads to the kindness of others. And if there is something that our culture desperately needs today, it is kindness. Will you be willing to be part of the solution of being a vehicle and vessel of kindness? To those you encounter this week, we all see a lot of anger. 
We see a lot of criticism. We see a lot of people going at each other. We don't see a lot of kindness. And yet that is something that should mark us as the covenant people of God. We learn from Boaz that we should resolve beforehand to act honorably always. He was a noble man. He had lived his life as a noble and virtuous man. And when temptation came, and we have to admit there was some temptation involved here, he resolved to act nobly. And we are to do the same. The time to figure out how to resist temptation is not in the middle of the temptation. The time is when you are quietly with your Bibles open on your knees before the Lord saying, to you and you alone will I live my life. And I will live for you in every circumstance, even if it costs me something. And resolve not to compromise yourself before the temptation comes. And I love how all throughout the book of Ruth, we see that integrity is important to our successful and fruitful Christian life. Integrity. Doing in the quiet places, doing in the dark, where people do not see, but yet still doing what is right and noble as an example to others when they hear about it. Let us pray. So, Father, as we contemplate these lessons, we know that left to ourselves, we would ruin everything. And so we thank you that in Christ, we are qualified and we are forgiven. And we call now upon that same Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to work in us a desire to be noble and virtuous people, to resolve to always act according to the principles of God's word, and even in the midst of a dark and perverse generation to live in an upright manner. Father, we know that as people talk about us, our desire is that it would be we are known as people of God, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for those times we have failed. By the words we have said and by the words we should have said but did not. By the actions we have taken, the actions that we did not take. And as we confess our sins to you, thank you for your lavish forgiveness. Strengthen us afresh and anew to walk in that noble and virtuous way this week with thanksgiving on our lips as we prepare to celebrate even this next week, Thanksgiving as a people. To that end, we pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. As we seek to live out these lives of faith, we ask that the Lord would lead us. And so stand as we sing, He Leadeth Me. He leadeth me, oh blessed thought, oh words with heavenly comfort fraught whate'er i do where'er i be still tis god's hand that leadeth me he leadeth me he leadeth me by his own hand he leadeth me his 
Plenty of opportunities for us to get involved. Make sure you sign up for the Thanksgiving dinner. Sign up perhaps to help with other fellowship opportunities. If you're online, don't forget to call. We want to make sure you see you here next Sunday. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us go in peace. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.